Welcome to Chronicles, a podcast about real people with real stories, having real conversations on health. I'm Joa Bwako, an industrial engineer living with a kidney transplant here in Nairobi, Kenya. Welcome. Hi, I'm Maya Olson. I am a global health advocate. I'm a cancer survivor. I live with a severe immune disorder and I'm based in Boston where it is nice and cold and fall and I'm really excited about it. Hi. My name is Grace Katera. I am a lived experience mental health advocate from Kigali, Rwanda. But what I want to be known as is someone who loves Reese's peanut butter cups. Hi, everyone. This is Chantal Boyson. I'm a global mental health advocate from sunny Durban, South Africa, and I advocate from lived experience. I'm a creative, empathic bird that loves to travel. Hi, I'm Michaela Newman, based in Geneva, Switzerland. I am a global health advocate and researcher. I am a wannabe yogi and a full-time Netflix binger, as well as the daughter of a man living with HIV and with bipolar disorder. I've ended with my father's diagnosis, and as you guys know, because I've already alerted you to my interest in this, I recently had a birthday, so not that recently, because by the time we get on these calls, a number of days slash weeks slash months have passed. But in any case, I still turned the age where my father was when he met my mother, which kicked off having me. And, and then when they had me, they quickly learned that my father got his blood tests, found out he was HIV positive in order to join my mother and myself in the United States because he's Canadian. And it was also at the same time that my mother and the family friend were realizing that my father was bipolar, though he came to later share that he he thinks from childhood he had a feeling that uh, he knew that he was bipolar. But I realized in, in like arriving at this age at 28, knowing that the next chapter of his life was going to kick off, you know, he was going to become a father and a husband and all of these things. And inside his body were these two things that that were ongoing and I at 28 still feel so naive I feel so young and I feel like I would not have had the strength to take any of that on and so of course I thought of you guys (laughs) and realized you know the tremendous strength and resilience that each of you has had in the, the, the past years and, and past years because there's been a number of years that have already taken place since many of you have faced these transformative circumstances in your own lives. So, you know, we highlighted in the first episode the value of being young, of being committed to this discourse, of being involved and engaged in recognizing the lived experiences that brought us here. And I know as a result, there were a lot of questions from listeners about each of our stories And I really hoped to open this episode hearing from each of you about how it felt to be so young and to get these diagnoses that uh, we don't, we as the public, we don't really think about applying to people who are in their 20s, for instance. Thanks, Michaela, for starting this off. I think speaking for myself, my mom survived the random genocide against the Tutsis. And as she fled, she was with me. So from a very young age, I was diagnosed with PTSD. And I remember quite clearly my father saying that 
when I was young, as young as two, I used to like cry and like have panic attacks every time they cut down a tree or I would like have like a going to catatonic shock every time someone had a panga and was cutting down something next to me. A panga is a machete. And when I was young, I knew I was different. I knew that there are some things I would never get to do. I would never watch horror movies. My parents would want to watch some terrifying news and they'd lock me in my room because they were scared that I would go into shock or something. And growing up, a lot of these other, this PTSD diagnosis developed into more things like panic attacks, like depression. And as a young person, you don't really... It doesn't really register until you're at a certain age and you're like, right, so how much of childhood did I miss out because of my mental health issues? And it's such a heavy burden and very isolating. For me, I was diagnosed with obviously kidney failure at 24. And for that, my life was pretty regular, you know, didn't really have any longstanding issues, you know. And so when I was thrown into this world at 24, in that hospital room, it's like, for me, everything stopped. And for me, that's, I guess, my transition. The point when I realized I have a chronic illness and this is the rest of my life. But as, as Grace said, it's, it's something that when it takes you back, it's like something happens in the future, like even, let's say, when I go visit a friend who's just in trouble, they have or something that's going to be the rest of their life. And I go and see them, the initial, when I meet someone who's just been told, it's like it takes me back to that point where I was when I was told that, hey, your kidneys are failed and this is for the rest of your life. But in reference to now Michaela and feeling so young and not really knowing what to do, I agree with you when you're young, you, you're at a point where you feel that you can't handle what, I guess, you're facing. But then, at the same time, it's kind of like you don't have a choice. You know, it's been handed to you, it's either you deal with it or you don't. And so, a lot of times, young or youth who've gone through something chronic or long-term like this, it makes you mature very quick because at that point now, now from my stance where, of course, it's something that is can lead to death, you know, and so the doctors or the team, the medical team, they try and make you understand the risks you're facing, but then they don't want to also, I guess the best word would, would be traumatize you or scare you about how your, your diagnosis is can lead to your death, but they want you to understand and so that the, the options you're given or the medical choices are given, you have to take them with some weight, you have to understand. And I was at the age where, okay, in my 20s, my parents can't really make a decision for me, so I'm not an adolescent or a teen, but I'm just getting out of the house, learning, you know, kind of trying to get my steps or get myself stable. And so when this medical diagnosis comes and I have to make decisions on my life, I feel like it's it made me more mature about what I, how I look at life. You know, it completely shifted my perception of the future. And I think for me, it was to a point where I had to now change 
pretty much given my career outward, you know, like where I wanted to go, really changed how I look at situations, how I look at family, how I interact with my friends, that also changed. So I would say that it affects us deeper than someone who has gone through most of their life and then they're told, okay, you have this, this condition. I'm not saying that the condition is more severe with younger people. I think it's just at that point, you have all these dreams, all these ambitions, and now you're told, hey, you might have to change this or do this in order to survive and make it to your midlife or to, you know, to be, be an older person. So I would say that's how it impacted me. It just made me a bit more critical. I, I look at my life differently. And it's, it's really made me enjoy the small things. I think that's, that's my shift when I found out about my condition and how I'm going to move forward in my life. My, my story is actually really similar in that I was, I was diagnosed on my 21st birthday, which is a true story, which we can get into the absurdity of that another time. But in the U.S., that's a really significant milestone. And so when I was reflecting on Michaela's question, and thinking about how I felt kind of nine, almost 10 years ago. And in that moment, that day, that week, that those couple of months when I was kind of getting used to the fact that I had cancer, all I could think about was that I was, I had to be so old in that moment. I was kind of an adult signified by like the fact that I had turned 21, but also that I suddenly had these, this reality in front of me, these sets of decisions I had to make. I, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a pretty treatable form of cancer. And so when you go through the process of diagnosis and trying to figure out prognosis and your treatment decisions, a lot of it is about minimizing toxicity. It's less about whether or not you're gonna make it. I had a really good like 96% prognosis. And so what I was working with my oncologist and medical team on was how to choose treatment that had the least amount of kind of lifelong effects and kind of do you take the risks on chemo where you could have fertility issues or kind of general, a lot of general things, radiation where my tumors were. If I had radiated in one place, I could lose my taste buds. If I radiated in another place, I was at risk of breast cancer, heart, heart conditions. And so kind of at 21, I had to make these decisions that would impact the rest of my life. And you can't really, you can't really know what, what things are going to look like. And so you just have to grow up really fast in that moment. And kind of that experience and being diagnosed with the immune disorder. I was 24 when I was diagnosed with that, like Joab, and it kind of, it changes the way that you approach things. You, I don't, I always joke that I don't, I don't talk about a five-year plan and that's not because I think, I mean, the mortality aside, I think you just, when you go through something like that, you know, there's not a lot of, certainty and you think really differently about sort of I value different things I really value doing something meaningful and less sort of I thought I could kind of plan my whole life out and um and if I work really hard and I do 
everything will sort of fall in place. And that's true when you work hard, things happen, but I don't sort of think about, you kind of don't make long-term plans. If something, if someone is upset, you sit down and you spend the time with them. You don't sort of worry about your deadline the next day or kind of those sorts of things. It's, it's shifted the way that I kind of approach my life, the way I make decisions, kind of what I approach and kind of can choose in terms of jobs and when I can travel, where I can travel. It, um, it's sort of, yeah, you, you grow up. You have to grow up really fast. I also relate to, to everyone in a, a little bit in each unique way. And it reminded me of, or it reminds me of uh, when I was about 10, um, I went with my mother to a psychiatric state facility in it's uh, Pretoria in South Africa, which is um, one of the big cities in South Africa. And I remember we went to go visit her brother. And at that stage, we were driving into the facility and it, it looked like a jail. And I always had this weird perception. I always knew about my uncle. My mom always spoke about him, but then she spoke really well about him, but I, I never really knew him. So when I saw him, I was always a little bit devastated because it was just so awful seeing him and also because he was living in this institution because back then in South Africa there wasn't a lot of mental health services or decent facilities. So it really did look like a jail for, you know, what they call these crazy people. And it was... It always had this imprint in my brain about, you know, I can still smell it and see it. I can still see the trees where we, you know, where we drove through and I can still see his face. The story was that he, or that my mom has told me over the years is that he, he was, he got into kind of like peer activities around drug use um, and the drug use really affected his undiagnosed uh, mental illness, schizophrenia at that stage. And it was just when he was super young, I think he was like 17 or 18 and eventually he was diagnosed with schizophrenia at 19. So he was in an institution like for a very long time. And this was really striking for me because um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder three and a half years ago after I had a significant breakdown and I also went through my own version of suicidal ideations and thoughts and was hospitalized. I also lost my job as a consequence of that uh, because they could not understand that I had this thing in my head. And or didn't believe me or it was a bit of a strange situation and it was this weird thing when it happened it's like it is it's almost a relief to know that the depressive episode that I, that I had a major depressive episode when I was about 23 24 and like I never knew what where that came from and I never knew why I acted a certain way and people would give me these weird feedback on different things that I do and I never really understood any of it. So when I got my diagnosis, I was in two minds given, you know, the bipolar situation. <laughs> I was in two minds to know that whether I'm a bit relieved to say like, well, now at least I know what it is. 
but then it also shot me back to that that traumatic idea of where my uncle was at you know and like thinking about his situation and thinking about how helpless my mom felt for years and years and years because she never knew what to how to help him I think she she carried a deep level of shame because she didn't know how to help him properly so you know and just everything around that and knowing that having this diagnosis comes with that whole set of circumstances without you even doing anything about it it comes with the stigma and it comes with your relationships changing and it comes with your professional life changing and it comes with it just comes with so much loaded baggage and it's things that you didn't create but other people created for you and you just happen to now carry that and that so that was a very that was a very difficult time in my life it took me about nine unemployed months to get to a stage where I felt valued or and I happened to then get a job and I was able to be a bit more stable and sustainable and I was getting into a space where I can slowly start you know like looking after myself and it took a long time because you know like you have new medication to get used to you have to change your medication all the time and when do you share your experience with someone and when don't you how do you talk to people about it who doesn't know anything about it I barely knew anything about it and then also trying to take care of yourself and deal with this trauma of relationships changing because unfortunately some people just they just don't want to deal with it they just rather just walk away or they just you know like don't engage as much because you know you are talking about these things too much or you are you must be so depressed or you're so heavy all the time it was a very difficult process but I think it also had that added layer of my family and my mom's diagnosis a few years prior bipolar diagnosis as well so like understanding that it was also familial issues was like quite a big burden to carry but it also taught me a lot of things and I think over the years I've learned to be my truth and to live my truth and to you know just something like this like being on a on a podcast and recording the stuff that I say which is scary (laughs) (laughs) because it's one thing to have a conversation with somebody around a dinner table and you hope they forget about it. (laughs) It is something completely different to record it and put it out in in this space where, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability. And I think it's not only just me. I think all of us are here creating a space of vulnerability for us to be fragile with each other, but also being in a space where we actually support each other as well. But yeah, that these experiences also opened me up to so many other things about me and about other people and about my life. And it kind of like jolted me into a whole different career path and different interests and just realizing that these things that are so, that are that makes me so afraid and the things that that's so unknown and the things that the baggage that it came from, I just slowly, like, you know, start to shed some of these baggage. And, yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping that 
my contributions with being a voice and like speaking and asking people to speak up will have some sort of effect and impact. And I'm really grateful for where I am at now. It's not always easy and I still go through my moments, but I, you know, I'm living a healthy lifestyle. I'm, I'm on medication every day and I take it religiously. That's the one thing I always take. And I try and, you know, be good to myself and I have healthy habits and, but yeah, it's a, it's an ongoing battle. It's not a, a fix it, one pull, there you go kind of vibe, but here we are. You, um, you mentioned the family connection and this came up in Grace's response as well. You know, I speak from a different perspective, but I think it's still a, a very relevant one for many young people where, I don't know, I mean, mental health is being discussed, but also, you know, um, in the last 30 years, this is the time where HIV AIDS has been so popularly discussed and uh, worked to destigmatize. But for instance, in terms of my own story, both HIV and bipolar disorder could have a kind of familial connection, especially because I was born before my father knew his status. So it carried first a very high risk that my mother and I would be affected. And this is something I didn't know about when I was young. You know, I, I, when I was young, I would always ask my parents why they got divorced. And my mother, at first she would say, uh, oh, there are things that you, you're too young to know about, you're too young to understand. And I learned my father was bipolar in grade seven. And I said, oh, well, this must be it. And my, my mother said, no, this isn't it. And then in grade nine, I learned that he was HIV positive. He told me I was having an absolute breakdown. I hated my life. I wanted to move to Canada and leave the mean girls of my middle school or high school. And my father kind of dropped this reality bomb of like, your life's fine. Look at me. I'm living with HIV. And I had this really strong rebellious response against my parents because I I said you need to go get me tested and my parents were really shocked and hurt because they said we're your parents don't you think we would tell you if you were HIV positive don't you think we would have done everything we could to know the status of your health and yet I still insisted on seeing the results myself but meanwhile I don't I don't remember or I barely remember that I had to get tested you know, every few months when I was an infant and again when I was five. And in fact, I remember the doctor's visit when I was 10 years old where we were supposed to get the final result because the doctor punctured one of my mother's veins and she bruised and I, I was like screaming because I wasn't going to, they wouldn't tell me why I had to get my blood drawn, so I didn't want to do it. And then on the other side, in terms of this family thing, you know, I learn about as I become older more and more, the, the effects of, of living with bipolar disorder and particularly how challenging it can be to stay medicated because mania can be something that you also chase. And, you know, when I would get depressed or I would have a mood change, how people would sometimes offhandedly make a comment, oh, maybe you're bipolar or no, 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 no. And, I mean, this is something that adolescents say, I think, these terms are often applied quite loosely. But 
growing into adulthood wondering if this would follow me. And, you know, it's interesting, gosh, so many different things where I've confided in people and one of these two things has come to hurt me in some way, you know, telling one of my first boyfriends about my father. And the first thing he does is cover his genitals like I've somehow infected him because my father has HIV. You know, it's like, oh, no, this is, this, this is not why I'm conf confiding in you about this. Or friends kind of using, you know, a, a change in mood to, to hurt me or to attack me. Or, you know, with age, you, you do come to shed these things and also to pick better friends and partners, I think. But it's amazing the, the the health of our families especially when there's a hereditary element or or risk that makes i mean i i resonate with everything everyone has said and speaking to what you said chantelle about us being vulnerable here i'm very i'm very appreciative of that and it's it's amazing to hear everyone share and strike some themes that run through all of our lives. But I think, yeah, it is intensely vulnerable. And I think the pit in my stomach can attest to that. Because for me, this is the very first time I've ever actually been spoken about, like, ever given, like, my whole story. Because it's... Your family matters, and when you have, like, a family member, me, my mom, Michaela, your dad, and Chantal, your uncle, when you have a family member, you you try, because you've seen how much the, your family has gone through, taking care of this person, having shame, having, you know, like, just reacting to it, you try not to be as much of a burden. Or try not to make your problems as severe. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if... Like, I know you, you guys can relate. <laughs> and for me, it was that all through my life, I've been trying to, like, minimize just how much care I, I need. Mm. Not trying to take center stage. And, and, yeah, going through life, Michaela, trying to get into relationships and being known as the, you know, the mad girl or the girl who fakes panic attacks or the girl who spends 70% of her time in boarding school at the sick bay. And that's that's a situation. I, I have a very funny story <laughs> about that. My very first, like, teenage crush thing was a boy called Julius. And I, I, I liked him for a time. He did like me back too, I think. You, you never know. <laughs> And had like one of my panic attacks, and my friends who are who are used to it carried me from class to the sick bay and were like and told us, "Yo, it's the same thing, you know." And everyone knew the the you know the the, the thing, the, like my thing. <laughs> um, so they put me on an IV and let me sleep. And then when I woke up, he was next to me and he was like, "Why didn't you tell me you were mad?" I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're insane. That's why they do these things. And I remember just feeling completely devastated. I'm like, is that what everyone in school thinks of me? Am I ever going to have a normal relationship? Am I, you know, and being a young person, it doesn't, you don't have the maturity to say, if someone thinks of it like this, then the problem is theirs, not yours. <laughs> It's, it's you, you just think, oh my God, how can I be, how can I blend in, you know, mm. how can I be less problematic? So, so yeah, so I, I learned how to hide my, 
problems. I stopped having panic attacks in public. I started, you know, having, you know, the the proof that I, that I have panic attacks on my body because I began to, I'm sorry, trigger warning, but cut myself. Even more, like, just hiding it, refusing to go back home, refusing to talk my par- to my parents. And there was a very brief moment where I tried to turn to drugs, but thank God for my big sister who beat the drugs out of me (laughs) she was like "Mm -mm, nope (laughs) so yeah so i'm just really thankful for this podcast because this is a time that this is a very vulnerable time but this is also quite freeing to talk about it and to also sort of forgive yourself and don't be too hard on yourself because having such a you know like this situation being this young and having something as intense as that is is a would be a burden on someone older but is especially a burden on a young person and like you said Michaela before we started that's why we should have more young people involved at all levels so that they can see that they're not alone they can see that adults had these problems when they were younger and that they're not alone and they're loved and they're not a mess. They're not too much to handle. They're not mad or demon-possessed or, you know, like to live life authentically and, and go through things authentically. Maybe that way we can have people who have healthier lives as a result. Absolutely. And I think that I think that's a really, really good transition into a more global discourse around why youth need to be heard and meaningful, meaningfully engaged in conversations around universal health coverage and sustainable development and all of these things that we've, we're becoming familiar with through our, our work, but which is so true in our lives. And, you know, they're showing, of course, with infant mortality dropping, more and more young people are aging. And that means that they're more at risk for injuries like road injuries, but also for non-communicable diseases and including mental health illnesses. And we see an, an increasingly isolated generation with technology and a number of these risks. And I think it means that the conversation needs to, to urgently be taking place and that young people need to be integrated into dialogue at every level and into action and implementation at every level. Because in our blog, we give some of the figures, you know, I think it's there are over 3 billion people under age 30 and 1.8 billion are between the ages of 10 and 24. Mm-hmm. And more and more young people are going to be entering into the health systems that we're trying to strengthen today. What kind of health system is that going to be? Is it going to be one where people can talk about their well-being and their health openly. I mean, and that's just one entry point. Is it going to be one where there's not just policymakers saying we need to include them when they're young people in the dialogue when they're young? Or to to Job's point, maybe you can mention this here. You know, if you're going to do that, do that now because young people who are far in in rural areas and who are suffering might not be living to tell you what they need. And I think these are very very important points that are are being neglected. They're written about briefly in policy papers and then they're they're published online and, and no one reads them or takes action on them. Yeah, there, there are a couple of points actually that I would like to 
kind of bring into the conversation, you know, just listening to you, Michaela, with your dad and to you, Grace, with your story. And I feel like all of us have actually gone through stigmatization. Something mm-hmm. happens and then you're stigmatized. And then that now makes your condition feel worse. So it makes you kind of react to your condition in a way that's not positive. Not because the condition, the condition, if you'd like for a second, take the condition as something neutral, it happened. Okay. Then how people react around you becomes an issue because if people don't encourage you and help you through that process of coming to terms with your condition, with your chronic illness, whatever it may be, then you have other things that starts to happen. It's like you start to generate into other cycles that you wouldn't have if their reaction was more positive. You know, like for example, I'm dating and I tell her that, Hey, I have chronic kidney disease and these are the stats. It might not live as long. You know, all this stuff. So if she's not aware of that, the first thing is going to be negative and it's going to be like, oh man, this guy might not live. Why would I, you know, waste my time, quote unquote, because you have a chronic illness that possibly would affect how long you live. Okay. But then if we're able to stand up as advocates, as you're saying, stand up and speak about it and say, hey, I have kidney failure. I've gone for a transplant and I'm possibly going to work at living long, you know, I'm going to just do everything I can with the doctors. I'm going to cooperate to see, you know, the best life I can live. It'll inspire people to understand that, hey, a chronic illness is not necessarily the end of life. Or, for example, if you talk about how you talk about your dad and understanding how you can, you can manage HIV. I have family members with HIV and they've managed for years. But then it's it's up to us to speak about it so that when someone is diagnosed with a condition, Someone will be like, hey, I know this guy who's had a transplant for like 30 years. You know, it, it, it changes the narrative around us because now you're not going to be battling that front and telling people, hey, I'm going to live. Hey, you know, you, they already know that condition and they'll be aware of it. And so it's, it's really important for us to stand up. But onto your point on young people and those living in remote areas, you're right. I've seen people in remote areas with some serious chronic illnesses and there's so much ignorance that the person can't even get to the point of managing that condition. I think when you have a chronic illness that affects your, your life, like your health, you, you need to get to you need to get medical attention so that you can manage your condition. And then you can start going into the mental health aspect of it because I feel like mental health now becomes a, an issue once you've already crossed that threshold of your body being taken care of. A lot of people don't get there, especially young people, because the support system, the social fabric around them hasn't been primed for that. So when a young person is diagnosed, let's say, with kidney disease, like how I was, people in remote areas just think that kidney or chronic kidney disease is a death sentence. So they're not even going to try and you know, help that young person or that adolescent person. They'll, they'll just wait for them to die, really. And that's, that's the reality on the ground. And so... It's really vital that people understand and say, okay, there's a young person who got this and they survived and they did this. So when we speak up and through this platform or Chronicle, I really see it as a platform to inspire other young people who may not know right now, or they may know someone who is going through it, hopefully, that, hey, that these guys, they're all young and they've actually gone through things and they're managing, you know, they're using the, the resources they have they're using the avenues, they're using knowledge, they're using the internet, they're using their phones to Google stuff and to learn about it so that we can actually change the narrative altogether and 
tell people. I'm really glad you brought that up, Job. It is so true when it comes to any illness and stigma. And stigma really like starts from a lack of information and fear, because those are the two main components to stigma. And I want to share two stories about what happened to me of subsequent to my diagnosis. So it was, I think it was just about a year after my diagnosis, I was moving to a new city in Cape Town and I was wanting to rent a, a room in a, in a house. I was wanting to share an, uh, like an apartment. And I had an interview with the guy who was, um, he was managing the house or I don't know exactly what his role was, but he, I had an, an interview with him and everything went very well. And I just happened to drop and say that, uh, oh, I'm just really glad to be in a space where I can like settle down after being in hospital and just being like having, getting a bit of routine and stuff. And he asked me why I was in hospital and I said, well, I've recently been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I'm, you know, getting my stuff back together and I'm really doing well and whatever. And almost immediately he was like, what do you mean you're bipolar? I'm like, I'm not, I'm not bipolar. I've got bipolar disorder, but I, yeah, what do you want me to say? And he basically went off to say that, you know, like we, how, you know, he asked me like, how bipolar are you? And I'm like, I don't un understand your question. Like, what does that even mean? And he's like, well, you know, we had this other chick living here and she was batshit crazy and I don't want any trouble. So I don't know if this is going to work out entirely. So I don't know what we're going to do now. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I didn't know, like, how to deal with that. I'm like, are you for real? So I ended up leaving, and I was really conflicted because I was like, I can't actually believe what happened now. And I have mulled over it for a long time, and I just realized that this guy is probably a douchebag, <laughs> that he should read a bit more. But then... Earlier this year, and I mean, this happens like, you know, the stigma thing is so incessant and it's so subtle sometimes that you don't even like, you don't even know how to call somebody out on it. Earlier this year, I had wrist surgery because I fell on my ass in snow and then I had wrist surgery and I just came out of surgery and the nurse was busy taking my bloods and making sure I'm okay and she made small talk and she asked me, you know, what I do for a living. And it's always quite difficult because I'm a global mental health advocate, but I also do like seven different hats in 20 different colors. So it's really <laughs> difficult to explain what I do. And I thought that maybe, you know, she's in the medical, she's a medical professional. She, she'll know what it means to advocate for people with mental health issues. And I said like, well, I... I'm a mental health advocate and I, I work with people with mental illness. And she's like, what? You work with retarded people? Are you for real? <laughs> like, uh. I, I am in a private hospital and I'm like, I literally just came out of anesthesia. So I'm groggy 
I mean, you like you referring to people as retarded people. Who the hell are you? And then I, sometimes I fight my battles and sometimes I don't. And then in my groggy state, I was going to fight a battle. And <laughs> I was just like, listen, first of all, you are a medical professional. And secondly, that word should never even be in your mouth ever again. There's no such thing as a retard or retarded person. If you don't know what it means to have a mental illness, then I advise you to go onto Google and maybe Google something or watch a video on YouTube and educate yourself. You are a nurse. You're supposed to have bedside manners and those kind of terminology should not come out of your mouth. And I was just like gutted. It was just, you know, these are very, these are isolated in stories in its own, but it, like I, I can tell you a million more of those stories. But I think, and you're right, Job, it's like, I think, you know, what, what we are doing, what we're trying to do, and, you know, the only way you can do this is if, you know, as young people, we have to sensitize, we have to sensitize adults because they're not going to just learn things out of their own. Like, I'm not saying I'm not an adult. I mean, I mean, older people, they're not just going to like learn things by themselves. You like, you have to sensitize people continuously. And it's like, I also realized when I, you know, as part of my diagnosis and the role that I'm taking, I, I realized that I actually... I've become more of a teacher than anything else because you like continuously have to teach people something. It's like, okay, I'll teach you today about depression, and today I'll teach you about anxiety. <laughs> That's basically what my life has become. It's like every day I'm teaching somebody something a little bit about mental health, and it's totally fine. But I've become an inconsequential teacher. <laughs> So that's where I'm at. But um, but yes, I I completely resonate with that, and I, I I happily take on the role because at the moment where I'm now, I'm really healthy and I'm able to be able to cre- be creative and I can create solutions within this space, and it's a good space for me to be in because I am living my truth and I'm being able to work in this community. I think when you when you surround yourself with people like speaking the same language and doing the same thing, and then you kind of like go just outside of that and you realize, oh my God, like <laughs> nobody knows what I'm, t- what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's like, it is quite daunting sometimes, but um, I've struggled with this a lot. I think like Grace, when I was younger, right when I had diagnosed, while well, I was trying to figure out the immune disorder, which is, no one's heard of common variable immune deficiency. And so to, do I t- take the five minutes to explain that? Do I just say I'm sick? Do I ignore it completely? I was also just, I tried to minimize it. I went right back into university after I ended up in remission. And that was important to me, but I wasn't, it was a really, really hard year. I wasn't sort of emotionally prepared to be back in kind of the stress of of my senior year in university. And as I kind of moved into grad school and I got the job at at Partners in Health, I didn't tell people I was a cancer survivor. There was my immediate team. Some people knew, some people didn't. A lot of people didn't know that I was kind of doing a full 
days in fusion once a month. I just sort of worked from home a Friday a month. And I didn't want to be the girl who got the job because she had cancer and that was her connection to working in, in cancer and non-communicable diseases. And I just, I didn't want people to pity me. I didn't want people to sort of treat me differently. And I think sort of as I've gotten older, the irony is that I've gotten more comfortable talking about being young and being sick and making it a part of your story and a part of your purpose publicly. I sort of knew why I was so motivated to do the work that I've been doing, but to let people into that, to speak up when you need to speak up, I think a friend of mine asked me to testify in front of the Massachusetts Joint Committee when all of the Affordable Care Act was happening nationally. And it was the first time that I had to write down a statement for myself where it wasn't kind of writing a patient story from somewhere that we work um, outside of the U.S. And it was so bizarre because that was so liberating. And I help other people do that all the time. And to realize that young people's stories are so important and it's even more important when it ex- extends beyond kind of being asked to to walk into a room and, and tell your story and then sit down while the experts are talking. I think when you can actually be kind of integrated in the conversation and I know kind of Chantal and people were talking about the times where that where we're not being meaningfully engaged. I just got back from the UN General Assembly and in New York, there were those moments kind of sprinkled throughout, but I think what was really exciting for me this year was there were multiple moments where there was sort of our generation being really ingrained in conversations and not necessarily having been invited because they happen to be a youth advocate. They're invited because they were recognized as a patient champion or their organization was they kind of had a seat at the table and to see people kind of take that and run with it was, was really awesome. We had a a meeting where at one point, the two people that were dominating the discussion in the best possible way was a South African advocate who's around our age with HIV and he works with communities, men who have sex with men, MSM communities in South Africa and a woman who's a, type one diabetes patient advocate who does a lot of the insulin for all activism and kind of the table of 30 people, there was maybe three or four of us our age. And it was so exciting to see the two of them take the stage, so to speak, and talk about the way that they mobilize activist communities and what sort of researchers or other generations can learn from that kind of work and fun for me to come back to the office and have my boss and our funder and people talking to us about their reflections and that was the stuff they learned the most from and to get to sort of see that in action was really positive and it felt like things felt really different in that moment than they have but then I come back to sort of what Joe was talking about of kind of who is it in those rooms, who isn't able to have conversations like this. There's so many visa barriers or language barriers or, you know, people who can't leave their families from kind of a rural area to come in and have their voice heard. And so how can we make sure they're part of, of these conversations as we kind of move forward on this? The beauty about this podcast is that we're 
doing this. We are talking about this. We are starting the conversation. And it's it's exciting to see the answers that will rise up. And I love that it's not going to be immediate. I love that it's not expected to be immediate because these are lifelong situations we are in and there are lifelong learnings with it. But I'm just thankful that the five of us here are from very different settings but very necessary places to come from because, you know, we represent a plethora of different cultures and customs and people and I'm glad that even if you know like 10 people are listening to our podcast those 10 people are gaining an insight into what it means to be living in a real life situation learning about real life people thank you Grace for summing it up that is it from all of us at Chronicles thank you for listening do look out for our next episode where we will continue to have real conversations on health. 